0: So we'll, we'll, we'll lighten things up a little bit before I get deadly serious. I just want to um, introduce you to the longest marriage in modern history. So we're not talking here about people like Abraham and, and Sarah. This hasn't actually been accepted by the, the Guinness Book of Records or the Gerontology um,
1: Association because this
0: these couple were married in 1925 in the Punjab in, in India. And of course, records are not terribly good going back that far. But they were supposed to have been married for uh, just over 90 years, almost 91 years, in fact. They were married, as I said, in the uh, in Punjab in 1925, Karim and Qatari Chand. Karam died in uh, 2016 at 110 years of age, and uh, Qatari died a couple of years later at 107 years of age. They migrated as a young couple to the United Kingdom. They lived in Bradford, and uh, they were there for most of their lives. Isn't that wonderful? How about that, eh? 90 years, 291 days. Now, the official record in the Guinness Book of Record from memory, it's about 84 years, and there are three or four couples who were married for 84 years. Now, Akutari, she was, I think, 13 when you you could probably work it out. I think she was 13. Is that right? Anyway, she was a kid when she was married. They were very, very young. All right. Now, because I'm a teacher, multiple choice question for ya. Here we go. Compared to non-Christian couples, the divorce rate among Christian couples is higher, is lower, is about the same or depends on how serious the couple is about. (laughs) Hands up all those who go for number one. No takers, number two. That's one, only one. Oh, two, hallelujah, any advance on two? We've got two, okay. It's about the same. Got quite a few on that one, yep, okay depends on how serious the couple is about God. Oh, the spiritual people, hey, 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 hey. All righty, guess what? It's the couples that are serious about God. Okay, now, um, well, I've got to say this fairly carefully, because this is research based on the United States, and there are some of the dynamics of marriage which are a bit different in the United States than they are here in Australia. But Dr. William Bradford found that active, conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preferences. In fact, in some denominations, they're 50% less likely to divorce. Pretty amazing, isn't it? The worst divorce rates are among nominal Christians, people who say they are Christians but don't actually live as Christians. They're those who identify, but do not actively engage with the faith. They're 20% more likely than the general population uh, to divorce, all right? So, um, Ainsley, you, you'd get some marks for your answer. Uh, who else with, with Ainsley and yeah, Andrew, Andrew? That mm-hmm. the, the divorce rate is lower, and of course, Michael and, and um, Tamara would win the prize. Because it actually depends. It depends on whether or not you're actually serious about your faith okay and um, that's a pretty important result I think because for so long now we've been told that the divorce rate in the church is no different to what it is in the general population but the problem is people have never looked at the right data because a lot of people can say yep I'm a Christian and go to church once a month, once every three months, once every now and then when they feel like it. And certainly in the United States, there's a fair bit of evidence that a lot of people who go to church, are what I call consumers, they don't go to church when there's a better offer. Mm. Like staying in bed because it's a bit cool outside. Or, or going off to a ball game. Well, in the Gold Coast, it's rain that keeps people away from church. If it rains, hardly anybody comes to church. I think Gold oh, Coasters right? think they're made of sugar and they'll kind of melt if, if it rains on them. Either that or they don't own umbrellas. (laughs) Anyway, what I'd like to do for the next little while is actually show you Australian data on marriage. And I actually think this is really quite important (laughs) because we can talk about marriage from the pulpit, yet people that are listening to us have got no idea what the state of marriage is in Australia, and sometimes pastors don't have much of an idea either. So really in preparation for much that is to come, I want to share with you some of the data that we have readily available on marriage in Australia. So this first chart here shows the number of weddings and what we call the marriage rate. It's expressed as what they call the crude marriage rate, which simply is the number of marriages per thousand in the population. The number of marriages per thousand in the population. The total number of marriages, that is on the the left-hand side, and that's represented by that pink uh, dotted line. And as you can see, the number of marriages generally has increased over the last 120 years or so. Primarily, that's because the population has been increasing. So as the population increases, the number goes up. However, the rate of marriage has been on a fairly steady decline since around about the middle of the last century. So from around about 1950 onwards, the marriage rate has been declining. There have been some some little blips. It's now um, just under uh, five per thousand in the population. Now, it's hard to know why it is that there's been a fairly steady decline since uh, 1950. But there was a book published in 1970. Now, the book itself might not have changed attitudes, and it was probably representative of a shift in attitudes, but has anyone heard of Jermaine Greer? Right, she's an Australian. She lives in the United Kingdom now. She's still alive. She published a book in 1970, which was titled The Female Eunuch. And in that book, she argued that limitations placed on women within the nuclear family, cut them off from their sexuality and vigor. Now, for those of you who have done any reading on politics you will, you will instantly recognize that as Marxism, cultural Marxism. The objective of cultural Marxism is to destroy the family. And, and language like that makes it absolutely apparent that that's the objective. She said this about weddings. The wedding is the chief ceremony of the middle class, uh, sorry, the middle class mythology And it functions as the efficient entree, sorry, as the official entree of the spouses to their middle class status. I'm going to have to get my glasses, frankly. I just can't read everything I've written here. I do want to get her quote right. So the wedding is the entree of the spouses to their middle class status. This is the real meaning of saving up to get married. And so this book, in a sense, gave people permission to view marriage in a different way. My belief is that one of the major Uh, sociological impacts of the thinking behind the book was to undermine the honour of motherhood. And uh, since about then, right up until this very day, motherhood is regarded as a second-class occupation for women. And in fact, Much government policy is directed at increasing the the participation rate of women in the workforce. And by the way, I'm not against women having careers. I, I would actually encourage women to have careers. This is not about arguing that women should stay at home, have and raise a family. That's not what it's about. What I'm saying is that the societal value placed on motherhood, was undermined by the kind of thinking, and it is cultural Marxism, that underlay the book that Germaine Greer wrote. So this represented a significant social watershed in Australia. And of course, her book became an international best seller. Let's have a look at the population, sorry, the proportion of the population that is married. And on that chart there, three different years are represented 1981, uh, 2001, and 2016. 1981 is that top line, that's the yellow one. 2001 is the the purple line, and 2016 is the, the pink line. And as you can see, the proportion of people in the population married after about age 30, it used to be 80%, it's now down to 60%. So over that period of time, around about 40 years, the the proportion of people in the population who are married has fallen by some 25%, and likely will continue to fall. The next I want to share with you is the average age at marriage. And as you can see that from about the time of the Second World War to the 1970s, the average age at marriage uh, was falling. And then it began to increase. Now it's quite interesting actually because uh, during the early 20th century uh, a girl, could marry at 12 and a boy and I say girl and boy could marry at 14 right and it wasn't it actually wasn't until the marriage act of 1961 when the commonwealth consolidated marriage legislation all around the states that the legal age of marriage was actually increased to 18 somebody can be married at age 16 or 17, providing they get court approval. Now, obviously things like the Second World War had a major impact on on age at marriage and so on, but since around about 1970, the average age at marriage has increased significantly. Now, a number of things happened uh, in Australia around about that time. Uh, one of the things that happened in the early 1970s that, was that university attendance became free for everybody. Now, actually, you know, one of the only ways in which a woman could get a university education up until the early 1970s was by getting a teacher's college scholarship and training as a teacher. My sister did that. She she was pre-1970-ish. Um, she, she got a... a um, Teachers College Scholarship and studied economics at the University of of New England. But also from around about then, there was a much stronger emphasis on women having a career. And so no longer were people saving up to get married, they were investing in their education by taking on university degrees and then getting into uh, a career. The other thing that happened after around about 1970 is a big increase in living together before marriage and undoubtedly today the most important factor behind the increasing age at marriage is that something like 80 percent of couples live together before they are married that's what we've got in this Slide here. Again, we're comparing 1981, 2001, and 2016. And you can see that, particularly in the younger age groups, by far the largest proportions of couples living together are young people. Nearly 80 It's nearly 80% in 2016, about 60% in 2001, and about 70 or 18% in 1981 there has been a massive shift in attitudes towards living together before marriage. Now, that the incidence of what they call cohabiting decreases as people get older, but you notice that every one of those lines, right, from 81 to 2001, the whole line is higher than the line for 1981, except when we get up to the 65 plus, and for 2016, the line is higher for every age group as compared with 2001 and 1981. Now, the interesting thing is rigorous academic research shows that living together before marriage increases the risk of divorce. In this idea of having a trial marriage or living together to see how it's all going to go, it doesn't make for stronger marriages. In fact, uh, this morning, I didn't add this uh, to the the slides for today, but this morning I was looking at some other research from the United States that actually shows that the quality of the relationship when people cohabit is statistically significantly lower than the um, satisfaction level or the happiness level or based on at least three different measures of the quality of the relationship, it is always lower in cohabiting couples as compared to married couples. So there's, there's something about marriage, eh? There's something about marriage. Now, the next one I want to show you, man, this just blew my mind. This is the relative proportions of marriages that are carried out by ministers of religion, such as myself, and civil celebrants. Look at that. Pretty steady from the beginning of the 20th century right up until about 1970. And then the proportion that are officiated by ministers of religion drops right off. And the proportion by civil marriage celebrants increases. So they're mirror images of each other because basically there's... The only other uh, way in which you can get married is to go to a registry office. So what do you think happened around about 1970? I'll tell you what happened. They lost their faith. Well, not... Well, yeah, we was steadily declining. Like, active... People of active faith has been declining in the population for a long time. If I was asked to say what it was, I would say it's about 3% of the population today. About half of the people who go to church, in other words. About half are not really engaged. The other half are, roughly speaking. Now I'll tell you what happened. And, 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 and this is one reason why I'm so interested in politics, because stuff can happen at the political level that has a major, major impact on the way in which we exercise faith. In July of 1973, Lionel Murphy, who was the Attorney General, he was the Attorney General in the Whitlam Labor Government, in 1973, he established the the Office of Civil Right. So prior to 1973, if you didn't want to be married in a church, you had to be married in a registry office then 1973 Lionel Murphy changes the law and they begin appointing civil celebrants and now the vast majority of marriages are officiated by civil celebrants now I think one of the one there are lots of other reasons one is Generally speaking, evangelicals and Pentecostals meet in church buildings like this, and no one's going to get married in a building like this, right? So they want to be married on a beach or in a garden or wherever. And often, civil marriage celebrants make themselves available for marriages in those kinds of locations. So do the ministers, but a lot of people don't think about that. The other thing too, of course, is if you ask me to marry you, you're going to have to do a five-week marriage, pre-marriage course or I won't marry you. A lot of people couldn't be bothered investing the time on a pre marriage course. So that's been a major shift, and that was a shift that was preempted by a change in the law. So when the law changed, there was a massive shift, and that shift has continued until this day. The next I want to show you, though, is societal attitudes towards marriage. Now you might not be able to see that so well from up the back, but there are four questions here on this uh, particular slide. And I find this really quite interesting. The the question is, marriage is an outdated institution and uh, the large pink portion of that bar that's the percentage of respondents to this survey, which is undertaken by the Australian Institute for Family Studies, who disagree with the statement, and the purple bit that smaller bit towards the right of each of those columns uh, is the number, the, sorry, the proportion of people who agree with that statement. So. Only 15% agreed with that statement, that marriage is an outdated institution in 2005, and it only increased to 16.7% by 2015. The next statement, marriage is a lifetime relationship and should never be ended. 53.9% of respondents agreed in 2005, 42.5% agreed in 2015. So, there's still a pretty significant proportion of people who think marriage is a lifetime relationship, and that's what it says in the Marriage Act, and should never be ended. And then this is the one that kind of made me laugh. It is all right for an unmarried couple to live together even if they have no intention of marrying. 66% agreed in 2005, almost 75% agreed in 2015. Now what made me smile of course was that a fair swag of people who believe that marriage is a lifetime relationship and should never be ended, also think it's all right for an unmarried couple to live together. And not only that, they also think it's all right for a couple with an unhappy marriage to get a divorce even if they have children. Now, that just demonstrates the wonderful capacity we have as human beings of holding totally opposite views on some things, even when it makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. Sometimes it also means that what we believe to be true, we believe applies to us, but we don't think it should have to apply to anybody else. That's where postmodern thinking has, has got us. But i show you that slide because I think it indicates that there is still, if you like, community memory of marriage. And people somehow think marriage is still actually important. Even though many of us behave in a way that actually undermines the institution of marriage. And next week I will explain why it is that I think God's heart is hurt by cohabiting prior to marriage. The next slide I want to show you, there's a lot of data here to remember. Eh? Good, good job we're not going to do a quiz next week. This is divorce, and again, there are two lines on this diagram. Uh, the 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 pink line represents the number of divorces and that the numbers are on the left-hand side of that graph. And um, the crude divorce rate, that is, the number of divorces per thousand in the population, that's shown on the the right-hand side. Now, can anybody explain why there was a massive spike in divorce rates towards the middle of the 1970s? No fault of divorce. And who brought that in? Lionel Murphy. Lionel Murphy, when he was attorney general in the Whitlam government, now, I'm, I'm not saying that it was necessarily a bad thing, right? I'm just saying, if you want to know why that data exploded as it did, it was because the law concerning divorce was changed. So, under the law that existed prior to the mid 1970s, you had to be able to prove that there was, say, unfaithfulness, on the part of your partner before you could actually be divorced no fault to divorce simply required you to state that you had irreconcilable difference irreconcilable differences and uh, you just had to live apart for 12 months i think it was and then if you could get a divorce no questions asked we saw a massive spike i think because a lot of people particularly women were able to get out of unhappy marriages and and I'm not totally opposed to that. Uh, And I'll talk more about this when we meet next week. Now, it's interesting that the divorce rate is actually coming down in Australia. It's actually coming down. If you have a look, since about the end of the 1990s, the divorce rate has actually been falling. Now, even looking at that data, you know, we're often told that half of all marriages fail. Now, that never has been true. The reason why that myth has grown up is that there were some sociologists in America who wrote a paper some years ago in which they predicted that the rate of divorce would increase to 50% by the end of the century. It's never got anywhere near that. If you actually measure the divorce rate properly, and I I, I know stats, right? I've taught stats and I've published papers using a lot of statistical analysis. The actual divorce rate is more like 30%, not 50%. If you just compare the crude divorce rate to the crude marriage rate, it's a bit under 40%. It's about 37% or so, but that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to take people who are married at a particular point in time and see five years, 10 years, 15 years later, if they're still married. In other words, you follow the same marriage through time. Now, when you do that, the actual divorce rate is more like 30%. So divorce is nothing like the scourge on society that many people say it is. Because somehow or rather this notion of 50% divorce rate has got lodged in our collective minds and it's just plain wrong. Couple of other things that are worth noting. The average duration of marriages that end in divorce has been increasing. It's now just over 12 years. About 20% of adults will marry more than once. And as uh, I've already mentioned about a third, it's actually about 30% percent—end in divorce. And of course, we have good reason to believe based on rigorous statistical analysis that for people who are serious about their Christian faith, the divorce rate is a lot lower than that. I do want to show you just one other slide, which is not all that relevant, but not not relevant to what I'm I'm talking about, but I just thought it might be worth showing you the results of surveys in relation to attitudes towards same-sex couples. Now, it's a bit hard to know exactly what people mean when they say same-sex and opposite-sex couples should have equal rights, because a lot of the arguments in favour of same-sex marriage Legislation that went through the Parliament at the end of 2016 was it or 2000s 2000, 2016 was that allowing same-sex couples to marry under the Marriage Act 1964 was an issue concerning equal rights. Now, Prior to that, it was rights over things like access to um, superannuation monies and uh, assets and so on, where people who were living uh, in de facto relationships, it took a long time for them to get the same legal rights. And then long before same-sex marriage was implemented, uh, couples in same-sex marriages could register their relationship, and then there was no discrimination against them at law, okay? Anyway, I just thought I'd show you that because uh, of some relevance as we're discussing marriage today. The, the total uh, proportion of same-sex marriages in Australia at the moment, it's only about 2.5% of marriages. Something like about 2.5% of the population in Australia are homosexual and about half of that are lesbian. Again, don't believe the data that you often see published. It's just wrong. It, it is nothing like a high proportions that some of the advocates actually say it's actually a tiny tiny proportion of the population but they've been very effective of course in, in lobbying the <coughs> changes in the law anyway this brings me to saying something about what jesus said because at the end of the day what rodney says doesn't matter what Jesus says that matters and uh, I just want to to leave you with a few thoughts here as you know when Jesus was on earth, the Pharisees they were people who were real experts in the law, they were always trying to trap Jesus by asking him a trick question and uh, at the time the Pharisees, there were lots and lots of debates going on among the pharisees about divorce uh, because jewish men had sort of got into the habit of simply issuing their wives with a certificate in divorce and sending them away that um, for very trivial reasons i saw another woman who was prettier yeah here's my note of divorce go away it was getting that bad And so the Pharisees thought they would trick Jesus and say this to him. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. And he often did this. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He, that is Moses, said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and his joy to his wife and the two are united as one since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together." Now, There's a couple of comments I want to make. The first is in relation to what the Old Testament law actually said, and that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. This is what it reads, and I'm using the New Living Translation. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns (coughs) against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord must not bring guilt upon the land the Lord your God has given you as a special possession. There's so a couple of things I think I'd like to say in relation to uh, the culture of the time. Now, one point is that only men could issue these letters of divorce. A woman couldn't divorce her husband. The second point is this. Unless the woman had certificate of divorce she wouldn't be able to remarry now that law existed for the protection of women because a woman could not go to work to provide for her own sustenance really if she was forced into a position of having to as it were fend for herself really the only options she had were to beg or to become a prostitute. So the idea of the certificate of divorce was to make it possible for her to remarry. Because in those days it was marriage that brought a woman economic security. There were other advantages as well, but it brought her economic security. So if a man found something displeasing in his wife, he was required under the law to issue her the letter of divorce because that gave her the right to remarry. What does it mean for a woman to displease her husband? Well, it doesn't mean that she forgot to put on her makeup when he came home from work one day. The culture of the time and the original language of the text certainly implies that she had to have done something wrong, similar to, but not quite adultery. all right? So this wasn't a frivolous divorce. A man had to have a reason. Now, we know the reason wouldn't have been adultery because the law required someone who committed adultery to be put to death. So she'd done something which undermined the marriage. That's what hardness of heart is about. It's about, if you like, human weakness. When we sin. This is not saying that God was okay with divorce. This is God saying, you know what? We, I allowed divorce in the law of Moses because you lot can't live as I want you to live. And the reason why the man had to give the woman a certificate of divorce was to make sure she didn't become economically and socially destitute that's important right? the other thing I want to emphasise is that as far as Jesus was concerned marriage was between a man and a woman because we're designed that way and it was a forever commitment He, of course, is quoting from Genesis. So the basis of marriage is that there are two sexes, male and female, created by God. I'll explain in more detail why uh, marriage as covenant is important next week. But I don't know whether you noticed when you were growing up that you became interested in the opposite sex. Well, in most cases, I don't know, it's a bit different today, but you know, hormones kick in and so on. And you start getting a bit interested in the other sex. Well, God created us that way. And He made a safe institution in which we were to develop among other things as sexual beings there's a lot more to marriage than that but because we're male and female God instituted a safe environment for us to express our maleness and our femaleness and that's what he called marriage and as I will explain in a lot more detail next week it's a covenant And in exactly the same way, as God's covenant with humankind is forever, so too is marriage, at least until we finish our natural lives on earth. So Jesus had a very high view of marriage. And in the culture of the time, marriage was being undervalued because Jewish men were issuing letters of divorce without good cause. Now, Jesus didn't answer them by saying, well, this is what I think about it. Because he wasn't postmodern. What did he do? He pointed the Pharisees' (coughs) description. And he said, this is what your law says. And then he went on to explain why the law was put there in the first place. Translated as the hardness of our hearts. The real meaning of it though, is that we can't live the way God wants us to. In our weakness, we stuff up. And God had given us a way to deal with the major stuff-ups that make it impossible for a relationship to continue. Next week, I will explain the circumstances under which I believe that uh, divorce is allowed based on biblical principles but we will